0: Sometimes in life, you just have to take a stand. And if it happens to be that the world stands against you, well, then you may discover what heroism is really all about. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. Half 3, The Stance of Hebrew Heroism The third path, Ivri, Hebrew heroism. You know, if you know anything about the Jewish story, past or present, then you know that to be a Jew is to swim upstream. And that, of course, takes heroic efforts. Remember, we're exploring the heroic face of Torah. I'm aiming to trace 26 pathways of Jewish heroism. And so the time has come to put our finger on where the Jewish part of that story begins, our definition is Monsieur Nefesh Lima'anto, the capacity to go beyond, grow beyond limited sense of self for the sake of the goodness of creation. We're on a quest for the good. And we'll find expression in our personal and particular thought, speech, action. But in essence, this goodness is universal. It's the all good divine perspective. And the gate of good, once we learn to recognize it, leads on to the path of Avodah. Life is work. It's an inescapable human truth that defines us all, which is why all humanity is invited, called to take the heroic path of Avodah, transforming service from servitude into something constructive, right? Committing to steward the good, which is not yet in creation toward its fruition and perhaps even coming to serve the king. Now, the Jews are simply one group of servants chosen for a specific task. And where does that task begin? Well, with taking a stand. And we're going to learn to do that on the path of the Ivri, the Jewish element that begins our story of heroism. Call it Hebrew heroism. Ivri is, after all, Hebrew. And it emerges with the story of the first person in creation to be defined by his insistence on swimming upstream. Abraham, because before our holy ancestor became Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father, he was Abraham Ha'ivri, Abraham the Hebrew. And Tov brought us to the gate of divine perspective, thus becoming really the goal of all our quest. Avodah set us on our heroic journey, and it keeps our feet moving along every step of the way. Ivri will be the first stance. It's a model for how heroism can transform self, and creation, and in its essence, it begins with taking a stand. So Abram's story is very rich, and I'm going to tell some of it shortly, but before I do, I want to appreciate the first label he's given in the text, because before he's seen as a prophet, called a prince of God, named Father of Many Peoples, he's known as the Ivri, the Hebrew. You can check it out, by the way, in the source sheet. Or look it up for yourself. And the question is, why? With all the ways in which people could have known him, all the names that they're going to give them, why does he begin as Abraham the Imri? Well, our sages, of course, had an answer. And true to style, it comes in three parts. Let's call them the intrinsic, the inherited, and the ethnic. Right? They say, first of all, Rabbi Huda says, well, oh, the whole world stood on one side, and he stood on the other, and there, is a side, Eber Ivri. The so Rabbi Nechavia says, no, 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 it's because he was, he's of a descendant of Ever, who was a character, he's the Ivri. And the Rabbanans say, well, no, no, no. He's from Ever Hanar, the other side, Ever of the river Ivri. And he also speaks that Hebrew language. Ultimately, I think the intrinsic is going to really offer the deepest insights on Ivri as a heroic model, as our third path of Jewish heroism. But... The other two have much to teach us, both about the word and about Abraham, so we're going to start there. Reb Nehemiah said he was called Ivri because he was a descendant of Eber. If you're familiar with biblical lineage, and especially the line of Abraham, you may know that Eber was the great-grandson of Shem, right? Who himself was the son of Noach, the first Semite. Shem and Eber play a fantastic, mythic role in the background of the whole book of Genesis. They, of course, establish Beit Midrasho Shel Shem Ever, the house of study, where Torah was learned well before Mount Sinai even had a name. That Beit Midrash Shel Shem Ever becomes a place for learning, a place for etzah, spiritual advice, a place to take shelter from family storms. You can take a look at the source sheet for further exploration of this very rich notion. For present purposes, it's actually the Rambam, 12th century sage, who tells us all we need to know about their life and about what inheritance Eber passes on to Avram, which was strong enough for people to see him as the Eri, the quintessential descendant of Eber. Now, the Rambam's words come in midst of what I might call a mythical historical explanation. It's a story of how creation started out in the garden, Adam and Eve, knowing the one God, and yet went so quickly off the rails It's worth reading in full. Again, source sheet. And there, the Rambam concludes his arc from Adam's direct relationship with God through the rise of the falsehood of idolatry and back again by saying, the rock of the world wasn't known except by individuals. And he gives a list Hanukkah, Methushalach, Noach, Shem, and Ever. It says the world rolled along that way until who was born? Amudho that pillar of the world, Behu Abraham Avinu, who is our father Abraham. Knowledge of God was a private affair from Adam to Abraham. We might even call it a family tradition, albeit one that each person in every generation had to come to know for themselves. But, says the Rambam, something changed with Abraham. Something changed that transformed a family tradition into a foundational vision. Abraham was more than someone who simply knew one God. He was, says the Rambam, amudol shel olam. He was a pillar for the world. Ha-ivri, that definite article, the, the Hebrew, founder of Hebrew consciousness. So illuminated by the oneness of God that he could light up and change the whole world. Well, in the label of Ivri, also teaches us about Avraham's ethnicity, as we'd say, because the Rabbanan said, he's from that far side of the river and speaks the Lashon Ivri, Hebrew language. The Ivri means that Avraham isn't from around here. And you can tell that because he's identifiably different. A speaker of that language from over the river, Hebrew. Now, by the way, there are only two other individuals in the entire Bible referred to as Ivri. Bonus points, right with the answer robmikefoyer, gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Rob Mike. Send me who you think those other two are, and I'll let you know if you're right. Maybe there'll be a prize involved. But the common use is the collective. Because Ivri is a tribal marker, a marker that upholds otherness. It was the Evrim, the Hebrews, whom the Egyptians feared as a foreign element in their society. And they channeled that fear, you may recall, into making the Hebrew slaves suffer for who they were, not for anything which they had done, and that tribal stance of ivryut, of insistence on being other, was actually essential in the transformation of the children of Israel in Egypt into a nation. You know, the Torah calls Egypt an iron crucible. It says, Hashem." Right, God took you and He brought you out. Mikul haBarzel from that iron crucible of Egypt. Allow me to geek out for a moment on my geology background because a crucible is a very important metaphor for life in general, right? You dig up the ore and you crush it down and then you heat it and you put it under pressure in the crucible. The slag that you don't want burns off. And what happens is either the elements combine into an alloy or they come out pure, right? Life works the same way, right? In order to allow for the elements of self, and peoplehood, to hold the heat and pressure, right to bond or burn off, life is a crucible. And when we merge, should we emerge, we come out as a distinct substance, stronger and more true to self, Which is why we say around the Seder table every year, Israel's Mitsuyanim Khan, we were distinct down there in Egypt, that our clothing, food and language was different than the Egyptians. What's more? We were identified and known as a separate nation, apart from the Egyptians. We were Ibrim, the Hebrews. But the tribal power of Ibrim goes well beyond simply holding fast to Hebrew distinction, because the crucible burns off everything which is not you and purifies all that which is. The sages say that Israel was redeemed from Egypt because we held fast to our names and language. We remained Evrim, Hebrews, distinct and true to self. And since that true Hebrew people belonged to the land promised to their father Abraham, were part of a mission of bringing a new Hebrew consciousness to the world, well then, liberation followed right behind that determination. It's worth noting, by the way, that in a world seemingly determined to erase Jewish difference, We need to recall that our determination to be Hebrew people is about more than simply survival. It's about our commitment to redemption. So, we have Hebrew consciousness, foundation for a world which can know the oneness of God. We have the Hebrew tribe, a people committed to staying true to ourselves and all the redemptive potential that commitment implies. And we have Avram Ha Ivri, in his essential quality. The one that people look at him and say, oh yeah, that guy, the Ivri, the Hebrew. Right? As the Rabbin said, all the world stood on one side, me ever echad, and the whole world, me ever echad. The whole world stood on the other. Now you'll notice the absence of any substance which creates this opposition. Avram stood on one side, the world on the other. Why? Well, that's a different question. Because the sages were actually identifying the essential stance that made Abraham the Ingrid, not a specific issue which he stood for or against. Life does not lack for opportunities to stand opposite what is. However, it doesn't always teach us how to do so. On the contrary, we all live in the flow of shared existence. The world defines not just who we are, but how we know. Swimming upstream is difficult for a reason. And that's why I think of Iruid in its essence as conceptual courage it's the ability to look at what the whole world says not just what they say to see the existence that we all share and say nah you're all wrong right just to demonstrate this is the profound inner stance which unites abraham avinu and albert einstein now traditionally that statement of the sages that all the world stood on one side and Abraham stood on the other is understood as referring to idolatry. I mean, the whole world said, There are many gods, your God, my God, up, down, it's all good. They didn't just say it. This was the reality within which they lived, the reality within which Abraham himself was raised. And yet, he came along and said, Yeah, no, you're all wrong. And that was before he could gain any knowledge of one God, much less any experience with which he could teach others of that oneness. Before any of that, Avraham had to be willing to stand against the consensus of human consciousness and say, No, things are actually otherwise. You're all wrong. And before you may protest, well, any megalomaniac or narcissist might say the exact same thing. Just recall that the space that Avraham opened up in human consciousness is currently inhabited by half the planet. Of course, Albert Einstein did much the same. The whole world said, Matter energy, and never the two shall meet. And he looked and he said, no, you're wrong. There's actually only one thing here. And I may not be able to prove it yet, but I will. Because his quest for a proof was premised on his willingness to dare to think differently, to look at the world and say, I know what I see, but it's not actually what is. This is Ivryut in its heroic path. The conceptual courage." to take a stand, an oppositional posture so profound that it can create a world more true to itself. In our unfolding story of Jewish heroism, Ivryot is the call to agency. First, find that gate of good. Set out on the quest for the goodness of creation, learning to see it wherever you look. Take the path of Avodah. Commit to a life in service of, not in slavery to. And when the time comes to clarify whom you serve, make sure you have the capacity to swim upstream. Otherwise, the world current may very well direct your life's work toward unworthy masters. So, we know what Ivri means. The Hebrew consciousness, making the oneness of God available to the whole world the tribal Hebrew bond, standing separate from other, true to self, with its redemptive potential, and a courageous conceptual posture, a willingness to stand alone, which is really the beginning of all agency. So if we know what Ivory means, who was Avraham? What was his story? Well, it opens with a classic heroic call, when he was still Avram and not yet Avraham, it says, Leave your land. Leave the place you were born. Leave your father's house, God says. Uproot yourself from your physical moorings and head out on a journey to wherever I will you to go. Leave your culture behind. All you know, anything you learned in your father's house. Now that's a call. Fit to his destiny as an Ivri. And then what happens? Bonanza. I mean, I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You shall be a blessing. Those who bless you, bless them. curse you, curse. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. That's a really big payoff. And not to undervalue the merits due to someone willing to set out into the unknown, nor to discount the incredible educational and developmental potential which comes with a starting fresh, unbounded by what was, but still The scale of those promises, and the fact that at this point in the story, we know nothing at all about Abraham, beg for an explanation. Noah, our last world-saving hero, at least we know he found favor in God's eyes, was righteous in his generation, and for all that, he got to survive, which is good, but it hardly compares with that rack of promises made to Abraham. This is a gap in the story so profound. And I might say it created Abraham's legend. Many people know the story that Abraham's father, Terah was an idol maker, right? And one day, Terah had business in town. He left the boy in charge of the shop. Now, Abraham apparently had already begun to question the orthodoxies of his day. So while his father was gone, he decided to try an experiment. He picked up a stick and threatened one of the idols. And of course, it didn't flinch. So he smashed it. He threatened the other and he smashed it and he went to the shop one by one until he got to the largest idol. And then he realized at a certain point his dad was going to come home and he'd have a problem. So what did he do? He put, cooked up a bowl of porridge, put it down in front of the idol, put the stick in his hand and waited. Sure enough, dad comes home and sees the mess. Whoa. I mean, as a father, you can imagine, right? And he says to his son, what happened here? I was just, listen, I don't know. It was time to feed the idols. They were all so hungry. And I went and made a bowl of porridge, and as soon as I put it down, they all started to argue, and this one and that one, and then the big one grabbed the stick, smashed the others, and took it for himself. So I said, What are you talking about? Everybody knows these idols can't do things like that. And Abraham said to him, And do your ears hear what your mouth is saying? That's the answer of the young Eve Greek. Abraham, of course, was the original iconoclast the first breaker of idols, literally willing to destroy his father's world in his quest for a deeper truth. And by the way, to be destroyed, because the story goes on that his father drags him to Emperor Nimrod, who gives Avram the choice between conforming to the idolatrous lies or being cast into the fiery pit, which he takes. So in addition to being the sort of original iconoclast, Avram is also the quintessential autodidact. What? He taught himself what he really needed to know. As the sages said, Avlo, hayalo. his father didn't teach him, right? And there was no rabbi in existence to tell Abraham. So where did he learn of God's oneness? Well, they go on and say that the Holy One gave him his kidneys to teach him Torah. Or in our language, the truth came to Abraham from his kishkes, As it must on some level, for every true Eri, the path of Hebrew heroism lies on that inner sense of truth. Now, we have some impressive credentials. iconoclast, autodidact, miracle-working, faith martyr. But they're not shot. They're not there in the simple story. Their backstory. Impressive and true, but not given to us with the text. That type of simple explanation actually had to wait for the holy Swath MS, Hasidic master of the 19th century. Now, Svath MS notes... That this question has actually traveled down unanswered through the generations. What makes Abraham fit to receive such blessings? And he says that the answer has actually been there all along in the holy Zohar. Now, I have to warn you, many have searched, including me, without finding. But the Swas Emes says that Abraham's greatness was that he heard that call, Lech Lechah, in the first place. That call, says this Voseminus, actually goes out from God to everyone at all times. Abraham's merit was that he alone, of all the world, heard it. Now, I just want to add, for the sake of our study of Ivryu, that if all existence is turning a deaf ear to some call, then hearing it requires clearing an inner space of silence. He requires a stance so decisive that you can shut out life's noise. A stance so profound that you can hear the promise of a new world. It requires being an ivory. So once Abraham gets to the land, which he had been promised, he has many great adventures. Ten trials, in fact. And while our sages may debate exactly which of those events make the list of Abraham's trials, they all agree that these were stages in his heroic journey toward becoming spiritual ancestor of half the planet. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and recount them all right now. But if we're going to understand Abraham as the Ivrit, as the archetype of Hebrew heroism, there's at least one trial that we cannot avoid. And that is the covenant. You know, I would venture to say that covenant, brit, is one of the most often used and least understood words in Judaism. It's generally compared to a contract and that's not entirely inaccurate, but it's insufficient to explain what it means that God and Israel are bound in an unbreakable relationship. The contractual element is you do X and I'll do Y, right? Keep my commandments, and the rain will fall. And by the way, if you fail to X, then Z will happen. You don't keep my commandments; I shall smite you from the land. Right? We're familiar with that, and it's only one part of brief, of covenant. Hardly a unique one. Contracts are universal. Beyond contractual commitment, a true covenant is founded on the notion that there is someone I cannot be except in context of you, which is why. When we bind ourselves together, there's no going back. For instance, marriage. I hope that we're all blessed with a partner in life who, when we face them, we become someone else, someone more. A part of us comes to the fore which could not have existed except in context of this relationship. And that's why when God invites Abraham into a covenant, each one will emerge showing a new face in creation. So Avram was 99 years old when he was called to the covenant. His name was actually still Avram, as it was originally. There's going to have to come a time when we explore the role that names and their changes play in the story of Jewish heroism. But for now, God calls Avram and says, lefanai tamim. Walk before me and be tamim. Be whole. Tamim, or mimut, this wholeness, is an important quality in the story of Jewish heroism. Avram's grandson Yaakov is going to be called the whole man who sits in the tents. In the book of Deuteronomy, all the nation of Israel is going to receive a command, be whole with the Lord your God. So why does the covenant begin with a call to be tamim? And what can that teach us about the heroic model of the Ibri, about Hebrew heroism. Well, my best definition of Ebrie is that it means wholeness of heart. Part of this is about exclusivity. You know, the command to Israel to be tamim, to be wholehearted with God, comes in context of all the ways in which the nations that they're about to dispossess from the land of Canaan were not so. Right? Instead of turning to the augurs, soothsayers, diviners, sorcerers, necromanting spellcasters, says God... Stick with me. Now notice that this is a reiteration of the Ivry's requirement of being different than the rest of the world. The whole world is there with the saying divine, necromancy, spellcasters, but not us. So a covenant isn't just about a contractual obligation. It's actually about an exclusivity of commitment. But there's more to Tmimut than simply fidelity, just as there's more to covenant than contract. Let me explain: I have a deep belief that true selfhood emerges through relationship. You know, it says in the book of Proverbs: "Barzel, the Barzel, Yahad." right Iron sharpens iron, ish yahad, just as one sharpens the face of their fellow. We have to face one another in a real way if we want to reach the deepest parts of ourselves. But here's the trick: We have to be ourselves first. Before we can do that, this is a complicated story. Separation is actually a necessary precursor to all relationship. What do I mean? Well, you don't have a relationship with your foot, right? It's part of who you are. Unless, of course, it starts acting up and getting its own program, which is never good. We have relationship with other, with someone who stands opposite us. And anyone who's ever been in a relationship where the boundaries of self and other really begin to slide knows just how unhealthy that can be. It risks loss of self. And when there's loss of self, it risks losing any benefit or power that a relationship provides. Abraham's invitation to enter into the covenant with God therefore required him to begin as an inbreed with an ability to stand opposite even of God. In fact, an ability to be so much other than God, that he was tamim, whole unto himself. And by the way, he's so whole that he's called upon to finish his own creation by removing his foreskin as a sign of the Brit. There are endless profound lessons to be learned from the fact that the sign of the covenant is in the flesh, and specifically in the sexual organ. But the most basic lesson is that Avram was given the agency to complete himself, to be a creator in becoming whole and standing separate from God. Only then would his wholehearted devotion to the covenant offer a context in which a new divine face could emerge. Remember, covenant isn't just exclusivity of commitment in a contract. It means that there's someone I cannot be, except in the context of you. So I need you to be you in order that I can be me. Two people, or God and Abraham, are two worlds which exist independently and come together in a covenant. It's a two step process. It begins with Abraham's Ivriut, his otherness, and it culminates with a wholeness of devotion, a misirut, and giving over, which actually his son Yitzhak will embody. Stay tuned for the next path of heroism. When we stand as ourselves before we enter into relationship, then our joining with the other becomes more than simply an expanded boundary of one plus one. It becomes two times the infinite. And so first Avram the Ivri stands opposite to God. God says, go before me. Be whole unto yourself. And then he enters into the binding covenant. Transformed from Avram to Avraham, by the way. right, Father of many nations, as the verse says. And the particular power of being the Ivri now becomes a source of universal creativity. It's a particularism that lies at the root of Hebrew universalism that deserves a discussion later. But for now, that's Avraham's translation. What, however, is the new face of God that can emerge through this covenant? So, Avraham's defense of stone is a story familiar to many. You know how when he hears about its imminent destruction, he goes back and forth with God. But if there are 50 righteous, wouldn't he save the city? 45, 40, 30, they can't all be bad. But even those who know the story often fail to sense its in depth. Abraham's argument comes right on the heels of his cutting of the covenant. After he hosts the angels that come to heal him and come to announce the imminent miraculous birth of his son Yitzchak, so the angels leave for their next text of destroying stone, and Abraham's left there with God. And then there's a very strange aside. The verse reads, And God says, Am I going to cover up from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, who on earth is God talking to? It can't be Abraham, because he's asking, Should I cover this up from Abraham? It can't be the angels. I mean, first of all, they just left. Second of all, there's not much of a conversation going on there. No, no. God is talking to you. And when the text turns to the reader, it's time to pay very close attention. So after this introduction, we're gonna cover up, we get a strikingly detailed explanation of why God indeed couldn't possibly hide from Avram what's coming. I mean after all, it says he's gonna be a great people. The nations of the world will bless themselves through him. I mean, the whole reason I made this covenant is that Avram will command his children to keep the path of God. And what is that path? Well, to do righteousness and judgment. Now, the tzaddik and the Shofit, the righteous and the judge, are both heroic models in Torah whose discussion lies ahead. For now, we know that forging a path of righteousness and judgment which all his descendants can follow, is Avraham's raison d'etre. It's why God made this covenant in the first place. And that's why what follows really comes as no surprise. And in fact, considering that God made sure to call our attention to Avram's purpose, the whole thing feels an awful lot like a setup, or at the very least like a teachable moment. Now everybody knows, in general, that Avram argues with God about stone space. But the depth of the story always comes from its detail, right? First, there's our strange introduction. Am I gonna cover this up? Then there's the very fact that Abraham stands against God to begin with. I mean, after all, the people of Stone might be called the anti-Abraham. They represent the opposite of everything he stands for. It would make perfect sense if his response to their demise would have been, "Yeah, smite them, God. I'm gonna get some popcorn. Watch." This bespeaks another of Avram's essential qualities, the boundlessness of his care for creation, perhaps a story for another time. Now, it's actually Avram's key argument, expressive of his heroic stance of the Imri, which I want to focus on. So God decides indeed not to hide the coming destruction for Avram, and apparently God gets the fight that God wanted out of him. Remember, we've been told, the whole purpose of the covenant was that Abraham would forge a path of stakah and mishpat, righteousness and judgment. And now Abraham says what? Khaliha, God forbid, God, right? You shouldn't do this, to kill the righteous with the wicked, sadiq. Right? To make the righteous like the wicked, sadiq. Khaliha, God forbid, God, hashofe kol artz, no mishpat Shall the judge of the earth not do justice? Now those are fighting words. Forget the negotiations that follow. Where does Abraham get a sense of justice so deep that he's willing to hold it up as a challenge to God? Now the simple answer is, he gets it from the same place that he drew all his true knowledge, his inner sense of what must be. He got it from his Ivriut, which now is empowering him not just to stand on one side of the world while the world stands on the other, but is empowering him to stand opposite even to God. This is a heroic quality that we know he hands on. Yaakov, his grandson, will become Yisrael, one who struggles with God. Moses will stand against God to save the people more than once. And if you happen to know any of the Hebrew folk, we're not the types that accept God's will lying down in general. And within the binding relationship of the covenant, a willingness to struggle with God becomes a tremendous driver for creation's story. Now, I want Abraham's expression of Ivriot, his opposition to God's plan here, to put something to rest. And that is the fundamentalist idea that anything which God does is ipso facto moral. I mean, we just saw that God told Abraham what was coming in order that Avram demand a deeper morality in order that he defy him. Which means arguing with God isn't an act of heresy. Sometimes it's the holiest thing that you can do. Now, the fact is, there was nothing to save in stone. It does happen. Evil and wickedness are real. But our primary lesson stands. Avram's path of righteousness and justice wasn't forged through obedience. He didn't receive it from God. It came through opposition. His Hebrew heroism caused it to emerge from within himself, but not just through his opposition. It was combined with his commitment. You know, to me, it's noteworthy that Avram's challenge is framed as a question. Shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? He doesn't say, you can't do that. He says, is that really who you are? Right, a question is always an invitation. Sometimes to an answer and sometimes to a revelation. The externals of our story provide an answer. God is indeed willing to negotiate. Turns out stone was worse than Abram wanted to believe it. The revelation comes in what the Ivrye Covenant, the sense of standing against in commitment to, really offers to creation and to creator. Because in this moment of opposition, Abraham becomes not just a hero, but a true friend to God. I bless you. I really hope that you have a friend in your life who can say when they see you doing something, listen, I know you better than that. That's not really who you are. Who's willing to take a stand when you're acting in a way which is wrong, and rather than walking away, will oppose you until you show your true faith. And that's exactly what Abraham does. Right? The judge of all the earth isn't going to do justice. I know you better than that, he says to God. Because there's no revelation in God's willingness to be merciful, or frankly, in the ultimate judgment passed on still. The revelation comes in the space that God has created for Abraham to be a partner in creation. Remember the setup. Am I going to hide this from Abraham? I mean, the whole reason I made this covenant is that he's going to forge a path of righteousness and judgment. In this argument, Avram not only reveals to himself the depth of his commitment to that judgment, he reveals the power of the impree, of Hebrew heroism. Avram is the first person in the Torah to stand against God. And as opposed to this being a destructive act, it seems he was invited to do so in order to reveal a deeper face of relationship in creation. (sighs) So there are so many stories, as I said, in Abraham's journey, but I think we've done justice to take Hebrew heroism. You know, I want to conclude with this thought. One of the fundamental principles of physics, even, that frames our understanding of the world in which we live is causality, this leads to that, to that, to this, to that. Everything comes from somewhere. There's always a backstory. And even you quantum mechanic geeks out there who might want to challenge me, that may be challenging our understanding of causality. Still, we live in a world where nothing comes from nothing, except Abraham. He's the hero in our story who's created ex nihilio, something out of nothing, without any backstory just like creation itself, which is why he becomes such a beacon of hope for so many. You know, remember, hope begins in the belief that what is does not have to define what will be, that we can free ourselves from the chains of causality. And that's the essence of Abraham's Ibrut. He broke with everything. He swam upstream. He stood on one side while the whole world stood on the other. He defied God and offered to us all a heroic model that we could follow. He taught us that real agency begins with taking a stand and that if we do so, when we do so, within a committed relationship, within a covenant, we can actually become partners in creation, helping even God to show a new face. And as with our previous paths, there is of course a practice which we can do, which we are meant to learn how we can embody the heroic model of Ivry, I want you to take a look at that supplementary video on taking a stand to learn more about that. For now, I really just want you to appreciate the challenge, the demand, the call to heroism represented by Avraham the Ivry. And for the Hebrew people specifically out there, I got news for you. Could the whole world be wrong? Is a question a Jew must be able to answer, yes. Because Ifriut is definitive of the specifically Jewish aspect of our heroism. Well, as for humanity, remember, father of many nations. He teaches us that should we choose, every individual has the power to forge our own path. I'd like to end with the words of a great Hebrew hero, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who says the following about Abraham. He says, Abraham was without the doubt the most influential person who ever lived. Today, claimed as the spiritual ancestor of 2.3 billion Christians, 1.8 billion Muslims, 14 million Jews, we punch above our weight. More than half the people alive today. Yet, he ruled no empire, commanded no great army, performed no miracles, and proclaimed no prophecy. He is the supreme example in all of history of influence without power. Why? Because he was prepared to be different. As the sages say, he was called Ha'ivri, the Hebrew, because all the world was on one side and he was on the other. Leadership, as every leader knows, can be lonely. Yet you continue to do what you have to do, because you know that the majority is not always right. And conventional wisdom is not always wise. Dead fish go with the flow. Live fish swim against the current. So it is with conscience and courage. So it is with the children of Abraham. They are prepared to challenge the idols of the age. And now I invite you to take the path of eruit of Hebrew heroism. Hey, before you hit stop there, I just wanna make my own personal heroic call. Be part of the Jewish heroism project. Go to jewishheroism.com, check out the videos and the supplementary videos, download the source sheet for this amazing content, Send me an email, Foyer at gmail.com or find me on Facebook at Rob Mike Foyer if you've got some feedback on how I can do it better. And if you go to the website and you want to support the project, upper right-hand corner, you'll see a button that says donate. You can give a one-time American tax-free bit of dollar in order to help make this project happen. The Jewish Heroism Project is underway. I want you to be part of it. Join me, Rob Mike Foyer. And thank you for listening to the Jewish Heroism Project.